Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, editor-in-chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talk to Brad Gare, Senior Managing Director, Widow Bryans, about emergency management and lessons learned from COVID-19. And now, on to our conversation. Hi, this is Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH, and I'm joined today by Brad Gare, who's Senior Managing Director of Widow Bryans. How you doing, Brad? I'm well, thank you, Jay. Good afternoon. Uh, thanks for joining us. And um, I wonder, uh, as we're we're going to talk about uh, you know emergency management and and sort of you know in the in the age of COVID, but wanted to ask you to tell people a little bit about what Widow Bryans does. Of course, Widow Bryans is we're one of the premier emergency management consultancies in the nation and around the world, and what we do is really focus on all four major aspects of what can happen in disasters. So the preparedness side, the planning, training, and exercises. We respond to the disasters and help the governmental entities and private sector entities deal with what's going on when it's happening. We help with the recovery, and of course, we help to build the resilience and and uh, and recommend mitigation measures so that when disasters do happen, they have a lesser impact in the future. And I imagine you, you guys have been super busy of late with COVID, um, working with hospitals. Uh, what are what are the biggest? I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say we certainly have been, and you know it's really an interesting time in emergency management and a tough time for the nation because, frankly, all the emergency managers uh, nationally have been engaged in this now for several months. But even before that in lots of places with flooding and wildfires and hurricanes the last several years. Everybody's been really at this now, nonstop, one disaster after another, or even multiple for three years now. And, and in some places, like in Texas, where they go all the way back to August, late August 2017 with Harvey and now continuing, they've just been in the full court press since then. So it, it's, an, it's certainly an interesting time. And, you know, speaking of those those kinds of disasters, it's not like you just, you know, uh, recover immediately after a couple of months. I mean, it takes a long time to get back to where you were before, correct? It takes years. We're now it's probably going to get lost in all the news that's going on, but we're now just one month away from the 15-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, and they still have a lot of projects that haven't been completed yet. So that's, that's the way these, the larger disasters play out. But even the smaller ones, it definitely takes time and patience. And some of them are just being significantly disrupted by, by COVID-19. The way that we typically recover from disasters, there's a lot of field work involved, a lot of interactions between federal, state, local officials. And it's all had to go virtual, which, which people have tried to retool their systems has just made it even more complicated. And I guess, you know, speaking in terms of hospitals, Obviously, emergency management has taken on a whole new meaning, um, you know, with with the pandemic. Um, what are what are the biggest concerns as far as emergency emergency management goes for hospitals right now? There are a wide variety of them. Starting with one of the things that's unique about COVID nineteen is obviously it's the first disaster in our nation's history that has included every state, every territory, and many Indian nations, Native American communities. And so we have a lot of places where they get hurricanes or they get floods. And so the hospital systems are used to dealing with the disasters. They understand some of the basic FEMA programs, some of the basic HUD programs. But we have, in this case, lots of places, big metropolitan areas 
that frankly don't get many disasters. So it's all new to not just the hospitals in those communities, but also the local governments. So there's been a, a steep learning curve in a lot of places where it's just something they haven't had to deal with. Uh, disasters at this scale at, at, the, at the hospital level, we're more used to localized problems, whether it's some sort of you know mass fatality incident might be one of the worst things you'd be thinking about, but nothing at this at this kind of scale. And so many hospitals are learning that they need to revisit their plans. We all have plans at hospitals, either for you know joint commission accreditation or for CMS requirements, but nobody envisioned exactly this type of sustained large-scale uh, disaster, which requires us to rethink it. So the plans are going to have to be they're being built on the fly. Yeah, I guess a tabletop exercise isn't going to really prepare you for COVID-19, huh? Not unless you've really thought through it <laughs> and the duration of it. It's, it's really correct. All the things that we typically have thought about. And in fact, with hospitals, one of the things that some places do it better than ever, but they don't all the time do all of their exercises with local government, with other non-hospital partners. So people are having to learn a lot of things they didn't have to know, including how to deal directly with the with state and federal government. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, I was kind of being flip about it, but tabletop exercises are pretty helpful in that it gets everybody around the table uh, that you have to work with in these kind of situations, right? They they are helpful. I'd say what, you know, what I would, what I would, my experience has been, and I've been doing this for 25 years, tabletop exercises are, are fantastic. But what we do poorly in tabletop exercises, and that's why we wouldn't be as ready as we probably could be if we did them a, a little bit more realistically, forget about the time frame. If you tried to tell somebody we were going to do a tabletop exercise for an incident that was going to involve, you know, hundreds of thousands of fatalities and millions of Americans impacted, nobody would let you put on that exercise because right. no one would believe it would happen. So unless you do that kind of big scale exercise, unless you can even imagine it, it's hard to think about everything from supply chain and shortages of healthcare professionals and how you deal with the patients, how you set up temporary facilities and testing facilities. You know, one of the things I don't even know if anyone's stopped to think about as much as they should yet, uh, Jay, but at some point we're going to have a vaccine and that's going to mean getting it into the hands of hundreds of millions of Americans, even that is something that we've not envisioned in a tabletop or, or planning exercise. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I guess, you know, one thing that the uh, the pandemic has done is, you know, it's got us thinking big, <laughs> a lot bigger than we used to. It, it, it definitely does. It has us thinking very big. We also, at the same time, have to think extremely small down to the individual patient and how we're going to, how we're going to deal with that. I've worked for a hospital in my last job before this, I was at NYU Langone Medical Center, and we did a lot of thinking about that, and in the New York hospital family, thinking about what we would have to do in any kind of large-scale incident, and the things that we talk about, you know, crisis standards of care, which is basically battlefield triage. Nobody ever really wants to think about those. Nobody spends a lot of time discussing what that really means, but it, it, it's now become a reality in a lot of places, and you're hearing that term used more and more because there, there frankly have to be those kinds of decisions made to, to save who can be saved. Right. And um, you, know, you mentioned your experience in New York. Um, you know, how does this pandemic 
compared to other emergency situations you've seen, like 9-11 and Hurricane Sandy, which were immense at the time? Well, they're all, they're all have their own unique challenges that make them very different. What I think would be the most sort of analogous to this would be, in some ways, 9-11, because when 9-11 happened, what everybody said was, we're set up in this country to deal with natural disasters, not terrorist attacks, and we don't have any programs or rules or guidance or response protocols around that. And so we had to develop them, and we've, we've done a pretty good job of that. It's very, very similar here, where you're hearing a lot of people saying, FEMA wasn't set up to deal with pandemics, our planning hasn't been around pandemics, and we don't have programs to support that. And that's largely true, which is why you saw Congress pass that $2 trillion CARES Act, because there was nothing in place for that. And that's one of the things that's interesting in challenges for the hospitals that we're working with now is they're getting funds from a number of sources. They may be getting funds from FEMA directly. They may be getting funds from the, the HHS Provider Relief Fund. If they're, if they're an educational medical facility, they may be getting higher education relief fund from the CARES Act. And if they're in a, in a city or county of over a half million or the state has chosen to share, they may be getting some state and local coronavirus relief funds. So there's so many different funds there that are available to people, but most of them have no real rules yet. They have guidance and guidelines, but no real rules. And so hospitals are having to figure out what they are comfortable doing with the rules at hand without getting too far out ahead of this because everybody's a bit worried that you may have the money, but at some, at some point, if you look at the CARES Act, all, this, all the programs, when they give them to a federal agency, they also give money to their office of the inspector general with the expectation at some point someone's going to come and audit these and you want to make sure you've done everything right. Um, and you mentioned the, that the rules, there aren't rules, like where, where do those, who makes those rules or who should be making those rules? Well, the, each, each agency is essentially empowered to make those rules. And if you look at the various funding sources, the, you know, the HHS, Provider Relief Fund, the, the rules are so broad in general, which is fantastic in many ways. It says if it's involved in preparing for, responding to, mitigating the effects of future of, of future COVID-19, you should do that. And it talks about things like building temporary facilities and acquiring additional resources. And they've got eight or 10 examples of things that you can do. But then they say at the top, and this is just a non, this is not an all-inclusive list. So it opens up a lot of, of uh, opportunities. Should you build an expansion onto your hospital? Should you go acquire a building that you can use as a medical facility for COVID-19? Those are some pretty big questions and, and issues that people are, are gonna have to struggle with because of this vast amount of funding that's out with very, very loose guidelines, frankly. Um, how do you, I guess, how would you recommend you know, hospitals that are going for funding like this, how would you recommend they sort of approach it? Right, so what we, what we try to do is recommend to first create an inventory of all the, the federal funding sources and other funding sources that are out there that you may be able to access. And then, you know, create a matrix alongside of that of all the expenses that you have that are related to COVID-19. And then uh, start checking off the boxes of which funding source could potentially pay for each of those expenses. 
and see where you've got a gap for one thing, but also figure out which funding source makes the most sense. There are at least five funding sources that can pay for PPE right now. Some of them have a matching requirement like the FEMA funds. Some of them are reimbursement programs. Others have been advanced directly to hospitals. So it's a matter of seeing what are all the funding sources available? What are my expenses? And then how do I get that best fit across all of these funding sources to maximize the benefits to me? Um, I mean, are there instances where hospitals get too much funding where the, they don't need all the money? Do they, do they return it? How does that work? I haven't heard of anyone returning it yet, Jay. So the answer is maybe they've gotten too much money. Some places, because the HHS provider relief funds were, were pushed out formulaically based on you know your, your Medicaid, Medicare receipts. It had nothing to do with your COVID-19 uh, patient count initially. Now there have been follow-on hotspot grants to help with that. But some money was pushed out initially that had nothing to do with what your need may be. So you, a hospital may have initially gotten more funds than they thought they needed. But what we've seen is, as this continues to shift geographically, that places that may not have needed it when they got that first boost desperately need it now. So one of the things that we think is really important and what we help our clients to do is figure out how to address what their, what their needs are. So what is it that they think their losses are or their expenses are, and then how can we find a funding source to match to that? And so far, we've had no trouble at all trying, you know, being able to find things to cover the funding available. And in virtually every case, we've got, we really have, have several multiple times of expenses or opportunities beyond what the funding allows for. And, you know, in terms of, you know, you mentioned uh, auditing down the road, um, how do hospitals sort of, I guess, do you basically just kind of be, have to be very meticulous in terms of, you know, noting, you know, documenting where the funding's going to and, and, you know, what it's used for and that kind of stuff? You definitely do, but that's the easy part. That assumes that you're doing the, the basics, but most of the basic programs are the same for the federal government, which is you get money, there's, it's, you're right smack dab in the center of what it is they want you to use it for, like, like purchasing PPE. So for purchasing something like PPE, you'd want to justify how much you purchase, and you want to make sure that you characterize it the right way the federal government. Some programs don't care if you've bought it for what you need right now or what you envision needing in the future. Others do. Some, some programs might say if you bought for a supply for the next three years, we're not paying for that. So really important even on those things to make sure you justify how much you bought, how much you paid for it. It's okay that it's above market price. Just make sure that you keep that documentation and keep all the records you need to with that. Now, when you get into more, more uh, innovative things that you want to do with the funding, you need to really start building a file on why you did that. If you bought a building for COVID-19, you want to be able to have to, to a pretty strong justification of why you did it, and what the cost benefit is, what would, what would have been the option and how much would have that have cost? So we, we've done this for a number of clients now that have wanted to be a little bit you know, less risk averse. They want to take some more chances to get some things done to make sure they can really respond. And because there are no programs with full guidelines in place for a lot of these funding sources, we're building them for them. We're essentially saying, 
this is what a typical federal program would require you to do to justify something like a cost-benefit analysis or something like that, to build that record of file so that when the OIG comes, Inspector General comes, you've got something ready to show to them because they're going to be, just like in a regular like IRS audit, they're going to be red flags, right? If you, if you purchase the building, you're probably more likely to have a close look at you than if you just bought PPE and, and the amount of PPE that you bought seems commensurate with what your, what your own staffing needs are. So definitely lots to be thought about there. And it's not just the simple, make sure you've got a receipt for everything. It's more than that. And also the question we hear a lot about is, what if I choose the wrong federal funding source? Am I in trouble? And the answer is no. The only way you're in trouble with the federal government is if you do what's called a duplication of benefits. You submit the same expense for reimbursement to two different or one or more, more than one federal agency. So if you've already asked FEMA to pay for PPE and you got your money, you don't want to take those same expenses and give them to HHS or anybody else. You want to make sure you only have done that with one federal agency. And most of the federal agencies are saying, if, you're, if it's eligible under more than one program, you pick whatever works best for you. We're not going to tell you which one to use. Just make sure you only pick one. Makes sense. Um, what about areas where, you know, the, the pandemic, the COVID kind of kicked in early, they got it under control, and now it's recurring as, you know, things are opening up. Um, can they go back for more funding if, you know, they're getting overwhelmed again by more patients and more cases? The answer, the answer is yes, and it depends on the funding source. So the, the, the funding source you can keep going back to as long as you need to is FEMA, because FEMA, unlike any other any other federal funding source, and this is not unique to COVID-19, Jay, this is the way the program works. And any disaster declared by the president, FEMA will pay for all eligible expenses. So it's not like there's a cap on a disaster. It's whatever is eligible, they'll pay for. And it's all paid out of something called the Disaster Relief Fund, which is a big pot of money that pays for all disasters nationwide. And Congress just keeps filling it up when it gets low. So if you have more expenses that are FEMA related, you should keep coming back for those because they will be paid if they're eligible. Other funding sources, if you've got a specific amount, that's all you may have to live with until or unless Congress acts and replenishes some of those funding sources directly. And now, you know, this isn't the first pandemic that we've faced. I mean, certainly it is the, the widest spread one but you know obviously uh was it about 11 years ago um you know there was the uh this was it swine flu what was the one uh in 2009 right and then you right. know h1n1 h1n1 and then you know obviously sars was more of a i guess it didn't really hit here it hit in canada a little bit but um should we have been ready for something like this i know people have talked about it for years that you know we're going to have you know, something analogous to, you know, the Spanish flu from, you know, 1918, but uh, were we just kind of lax in, in, in getting ready for something like this? Because it hasn't really happened on this kind of scale. You know, this is one of the things that as, a, as an emergency manager for a long time really, really concerns me, Jay, is that we pendulum to whatever the last disaster was that happened. In the late 90s, we had a lot of hurricanes and earthquakes and we really pendulum towards being able to deal with those kinds of incidents and all of a sudden 9-11 came and we hadn't had anything like that so then we spent a number of years so focused on terrorism and response to terrorism 
which is part of why we got caught flat-footed on Katrina, is we really hadn't been focused on hurricanes. There hadn't been a lot of hurricanes in the early 2000s until, uh, until Katrina. So we tend to pendulum back and forth, and in the meantime, other, other types of incidents get lost in the mix. I go all the way back to, you know, before 2000, even with, uh, with West Nile virus in New York City, which it, it wasn't the worst thing, but it, was a, it should have been a tip-off that we are not prepared to deal with necessarily diseases of that sort. And then, as you said, we had SARS, didn't pay it all that much attention to it because of the impacts here, H1N1. We were, we were scared, but again, didn't have to do a big response. You know, the one that got my attention because I was working at, at the NYU Langone at the time was Ebola, yep. where we didn't end up with Ebola on a big scale here. But what, what made me nervous in New York City was that, you know, we saw what was going on in, in Africa with the number of patients that clinics were, were dealing with. And there was a tremendous amount of money put into creating a series of four or five receiver hospitals for potential Ebola patients in New York City. And the cost was very, very high. And when we got together as a group of hospitals and talked about after all those expenses, how many Ebola patients we thought we could handle across these five world-class hospitals. And the answer was five oh, man. adults, no children. There was no one prepared to deal with a, a child who had Ebola. So that I think should have been a bigger eye-opener for us. It, 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 uh, it, it didn't get the impact that it needed to. Zika didn't get our attention enough. But if you go back now, it's easy to look back. But to see that chain of events from West Nile virus all the way through Zika, we should have seen what was possible. And, and you can add MERS in there, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Triple E. Lots of things. Right. Lots of things could tip us off if this could happen to us. But even as we saw you know, with COVID-19, it's hard for us to believe something can affect us until it affects us, and then it's too late. Well, and we're, and we're kind of used to seeing things happen in other parts of the world. Uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, these things hit like bigger in, say, in Africa or in Asia. You know, uh, you know some of the, you know, I think H1N1 was pretty huge over in Asia. And, uh, you know, I think we're just used to it kind of, you know, maybe one or two cases gets over here, but nothing that widespread. So, I, yeah, I guess we're just, you know, we're a little... Uh, we're a little lax about that just because we're used to, you know, being, I don't know, protected by the, the difference of the ocean or something. But um, I think we also, feel, you know, we also feel protected, Jay, by the amazing uh, healthcare system that we have in the country for all of its flaws. It's, it's, it's the top in the, it's one of the top in the world. But I think what we underestimate is what other countries do with far less in dealing with yeah. these. So when we see big outbreaks and lots of problems, the, the, the problems proportional to what their healthcare system is like is very different. So they're doing an amazing job with fewer resources. And so we just assume that we, that we're invincible to that. And, and obviously we've seen now that we aren't. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, um, you know, emergency standards have sort of recommended that hospitals take an all hazards approach to be prepared for any kind of emergency, which I guess is, easier said than done in this case, but, you know, what, you know, what are your thoughts on sort of the all hazards approach hack? How do you kind of, you know, stay on your toes for hurricanes and pandemics and, you know, whatever else might happen? It's, it's tough even for professional emergency management organizations like FEMA 
because you know now we're now we're obviously going to pendulum towards pandemics for a while. But what else? You know what else is out there? Electromagnetic pulses and you know super volcanoes and all kinds of other things that you sit there and you think, well, that's never going to happen. But isn't that what we thought? You know, back in February about a pandemic of this scale. So somebody's got to really be thinking about that. And unfortunately, right now there's no agency in the federal government that is focused specifically on thinking about large-scale, massive, global types of disasters. We just don't do that. And there aren't plans sitting on the shelf for that. And you can't scale smaller plans to, to, to make that kind of quantum leap up to this. So that's at, the, that's at the national level about people who are supposed to do this for a living. It's really hard for healthcare facilities, not just hospitals, but you know when, when CMS passed the, the, the regulation a couple of years ago, requiring that 80,000 healthcare-related facilities in the nation had to have emergency management plans, it sounded great. But if you don't give them the resources to create those plans, all you're doing is giving yourself an illusion of preparedness. There's no way that, you know, smaller nursing homes and other clinics and all kinds of other healthcare facilities have the kind of resources that the big, you know, Class A hospitals do to have full-time emergency managers building plans like this. So it's, it's a bit of a, you know, an illusion that we've got the kind of emergency management preparedness activities that we need for our, for our healthcare system from top to bottom. Especially now with, you know, the last several months, you know, uh, a lot, I know a lot of rural facilities are, are struggling to stay open, um, you know, just because of, you know, the lack of, lack of, uh, revenue and, uh, you know, I, I imagine that emergency management is probably their, you know, not their most important concern right now. Just they're just trying to stay open. So there's no doubt about it, Jay. And and you know, having having been in the the healthcare emergency management world for a while, when I was specifically there, a lot of hospitals, the emergency managers, it's an additional duty for someone who may have a vastly different job description, and that's just something they've been asked to pick up, and that can be. That can be pretty thankless because everyone in a hospital is always extremely busy and to have to have the responsibility for doing something like this that even in a small facility is a full-time job makes it tough to really prepare. Um, and I guess, you know, obviously we're still kind of in the midst of this uh, pandemic, but what, what lessons can be taken, you know, from the response to, to COVID-19? What can we do better, you know, next year or, you know, what, if something else hits, what, what are you seeing? Well, one of the things that you've heard a lot of people complain about is that they think the federal government should be more you know, sort of hands-on involved in, in managing this disaster, which may be true, but the fact of the matter is that the you know, national response framework, which has been the doctrine for responding to disasters since 9-11, since post the post 9-11 framework, Everything in the national response framework talks about local disasters being managed locally and empowering local governments to really take the lead, which makes sense when it's a local disaster. But if you've got a national disaster, you, you can't operate that way. So we've, we've spent this last almost 20 years now empowering local entities to take charge of their own disasters. We now have to rethink that. And if something is national or global in scale, we have to think about how the state and federal government act in unison to help us really manage this and not try to leave it 
to the same sort of way that we would a hurricane where, yes, the local entities are very capable. If you give them the support, they're very capable of making the important decisions. So I think that's really one of the big takeaways. I think the other, you know, another takeaway is that we need to make sure that we have programs in place ready to go for these types of disasters so that you're not trying to make them up on the fly and creating all of this really angst for, I can tell you that we've talked to so many hospitals and we've done webinars for many, many, many state hospital associations. And there's so many people out there in these hospitals who are exhausted from dealing with the, the needs of taking care of people and saving lives. And they also have to try to now figure out this federal bureaucracy. And I, I think in some, time, in some cases, that's far more the exhausting side of it, is figuring out how to deal with the federal government and the funding sources. It's a better problem to have than not having federal funding. But I think the federal government can do a better job of making this easy for people and not making so much bureaucracy that it's, it's uh, exhausting everybody. And um, I guess another element too is the supply chain. Obviously, we've found that you know when we needed PPE and, and things like that, uh, and, and you know early on, um, you know we we were very uh, lacking in uh, in supplies. What can we do better going forward? Well, supply chain is something that the that government has never done particularly well outside of the, the military that has to be prepared to do that. But there's really day in, day out, year in, year out, not a need for the federal government to do that. The private sector does it amazingly well. So I think we need to figure out how to either empower the private sector to be more of a part of that or learn the lessons from them and be able to build a robust supply chain because, frankly, you know, a supply chain management is something that will never make you completely successful in a disaster response. But if you get it wrong, you can guarantee an unsuccessful disaster response. It's as straightforward and simple as that. And that's one of the lessons here is not being prepared to, to do supply chain very well. And we shouldn't be surprised because we haven't done it very well on, on disasters historically with simple things like water and ice and MREs and some of the basic commodities in the delivery of them, but also the planning for them. I know when I was at the New York City Office of Emergency Management in uh, 2006, they were working on their hurricane plan, the sheltering associated with that. And they were talking about sheltering a half million to three quarters of a million people in public shelters and feeding them three meals a day. And their plan was to use MREs, meals ready to eat. When you start doing the math of that, it's a great plan, but you quickly exhaust the national supply chain in a matter of days. And if you don't think through how you're going to do that, you end up the same place we were with, with, with PPE in that you don't have any and you can't get it and you can't get it where you need it, when you need it. And, you know, you mentioned that we have, we typically haven't done that kind of planning very well. Is it, I mean, is a big part of that just resources or is it just, we, like you said, been doing the pendulum thing and going from, one thing to another and not necessarily looking at the big picture. I mean, it's hard. How are you, if you were to say, let's do a, let's do a tabletop exercise that involves all 50 states and, and at least some of the major municipalities and, and counties, and you try to just pick a time to have a planning meeting <laughs> yeah. to talk about this, to talk about the exercise, you would be months just trying to get people on the phone to talk about whether or not they could have an exercise, let alone, the kind of intensive planning that would be required to actually 
pull off an exercise and then push out all the, all the things after that that you would need to do to be able to get people at all levels of government ready to respond to the actual incident. So it's a tall order. As I said before, that's nobody's, that's right now nobody's job for catastrophic disasters. It's just not there. Do you see that changing given, you know, what's been happening in the last several months? Do you, do you think that, you know, there will be some sort of an entity that kind of, you know, is responsible for just wide ranging things that involve everybody? I would hope so. I mean, it certainly is in FEMA's mission to do things like that, but they're not resourced to do that. This is not people that, I mean, FEMA at the end of the day is a great organization. I worked for it for a long time and you know, treasured my time there, but they're really set up to support state and local governments. They're not there to, they don't have a big think tank of you know, top PhDs thinking about this and being able to do all the, the calculations and permutations and planning that would be necessary to manage a national scale disaster. They're putting out fires literally and figuratively every day all across the country. So they'd have to create a new cell of people, yeah. multidisciplinary, pulled from all the major federal agencies and work on this in isolation, not able to be distracted by the disasters that happen right now and stay on top of it. Frankly, right? so that's what you'd have to do. Well, hopefully we won't have to uh, deal with something like this uh, again anytime soon, but obviously we're still dealing with it. So who knows, who knows when, uh, when things will let up. I mean, you know, I think you were, you were saying before we were talking that, you know, you've been super busy, um, you know, and obviously there's all the other, th we're going into hurricane season now and, you know, there's a lot of other things that can happen on top of all this. So it's, it's, it's true. And there, you know, there obviously we're in hurricane season now and FEMA's had to put out a special guidance for this hurricane season, because think about what happens if a hurricane approaches the Gulf Coast, typically you'd issue an evacuation order and people would head for shelters and sleep on cots on gym floors or community centers. That's not going to happen in COVID-19. So FEMA's, FEMA's been telling local governments, prepare to do things like hotels and keep people in individual rooms with their families. So it's a whole different world. And even the response, if we have to respond to a big disaster, just getting out there in the streets and doing search and rescue delivering commodities, all those things we typically do is going to have to look very, very different. Well, I guess, you know, from uh, January till now, things are, you know, markedly different than we thought they'd be. So, you know, I guess we'll uh, just have to get ready for more, uh, more, more new and different things. Um, Brad, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Um, this was really, uh, really great uh, information and, uh, Let's hope that uh, you're not so busy uh, <laughs> in the next few months. Thank you, Jay. I really appreciate it. Thanks for getting the word out and just make, you know, want to make sure that the, the family of healthcare professionals out there in hospitals and all other types of facilities know how much we all appreciate everything you're doing as emergency managers, especially just hats off to everything that people who didn't sign up to be emergency managers in the hospital world and have taken that on. Thank you, thank you for being a part of this. Definitely. Well, thanks, Brad. Have a good day. You too. And that wraps up episode 10 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page on psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. 
Thanks again and stay safe.